0: all right all right <laughs> oh yeah
1: all right and that's gonna be the intro to the podcast hello everybody and welcome to episode four of pith and moment a podcast for all things shakespeare my name's kyle downing i'm a shakespeare coach and i am here with a good friend of mine jillian wiggin jillian how are you today
0: I'm great. How are you, Kyle?
1: I am fantastic. I'm ready to hear all about you. Why don't you tell the listeners just a little something about yourself?
0: Um, Sure. Okay. Uh, I um am an actor, and I am the resident teaching artist at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, which is based out of Cold Spring. And I'm kind of just an all-around Shakespeare dork. I went to uh, NYU undergrad, and I studied at the classical studio with Louis Sheeter and Daniel Spector. And that's where this all got started. Um, And I act in a lot of Shakespeare plays. And for work, I go into schools from elementary all the way up to West Point uh, cadets and teach Shakespeare from the actor's perspective. So I'm a little bit obsessed with Shakespeare.
1: Well, I think we can both agree that that's beneficial for this podcast. Jillian and I did a production a while ago. Uh, well, about a year ago now, I guess, a little over a year, uh, two productions at the Virginia Shakespeare Festival together, uh, well, we did a musical called Illyria, which was based on Twelfth Night, which was just so much fun and had a great company, and we both had a really good time playing Viola and Sebastian, and we were yeah. twins for the whole summer.
0: Twins!
1: It's amazing, because if you put our headshots side by side, they look remarkably similar.
0: It's creepy, and and my dad saw your headshot, and he was like, oh, I thought that was your brother, Jillian, because I have an older brother. And he was like, <laughs> why, does, why does David have a professional photograph of himself? Oh, wait, that's not your brother? Pretty weird. So just imagine Kyle with a wig. Oh,
1: oh. A wig. Or, a, or a bright pink uh, cap, uh, biggin, <laughs> as they called it.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: um, so... We got a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to throw us right into the news. There is, apparently, a production opening in the near future, uh, Lincoln Memorial University, in which phrases such as... Well, well, the production is As You Like It, first off, to, to give you an intro to it. It's at Lincoln Memorial University, and it will be played with an Appalachian twist. Hmm. That would be interesting enough in and of itself. Um, there have been, I've seen a couple of productions of As You Like It that do feature some kind of Appalachian twist, but this one supposedly replaces the word thou with y'all frequently during the play. Um, the the uh, Katie Buher says, We changed a lot of the dialect, so phrases like you're used to hearing like ain't and y'all and things of that nature now make an appearance in the show where they didn't in Shakespeare's. So, this opens up a whole can of worms for the world of Shakespeare and I applaud this company for taking this risk. Jillian, what do you think of such a thing happening and be blunt and honest with us if possible?
0: Um, I think it's all right. I mean, I kind of, I don't know. I'm kind of like, why? And I think a lot of the time the answer is like because we want people to be able to connect with it and I think that's noble. Um, and important, but I'm like, is that the best way to do it? I don't know. And also, if thou is being changed to y'all, uh, Shakespeare in me is like, but, but thou is not a a you plural. So that just.
1: (laughs) That's true. I didn't even think about it from that standpoint. Replacing thou with y'all actually puts it at a whole different part of speech, doesn't it?
0: That's more annoying to me than the actual change. I don't know. It's like, did you hear about this, uh, the um, Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet, where they changed where To Be or Not To Be came in, that it starts the show?
1: You know, I have, I did hear about that, and it it didn't necessarily bother me, because I do remember a production of As You Like It in undergrad, or in graduate school that I did with uh, Sarah Becker, who I talk about on this podcast all the time, because she was an amazing teacher for me in graduate school, and... We took the um the Old Wars a stage speech and put it at the beginning of the play and it didn't it wasn't necessarily the same play, obviously because it starts on a shared line, so it's a bit difficult to start a shared line at the beginning of the play. but it it gave its own energy to the introduction of the show, which happened to work for our production, so while textually. It's it's some like blasphemous or, or whatever you might want to call it to Shakespeare. It did something to the individual production that I felt was valuable.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, my feeling is like if it's for the production, if it's adding something to the production and there's this whole, you know, idea of what they want to do, I totally get it. Um, and I, I kind of hate people that are like, no, the words are, you know, you can't change anything because it's like every Shakespeare play I've ever seen at least has had some cutting because I don't think a modern audience necessarily uh, can sit through three and a half hours of something or four hours. Um, so everything's always been kind of tweaked at the very least. I guess just changing things to y'all, I, I kind of wonder Why? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the question. We, we talk about how it's interesting if it does something to the value of the production. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, besides the fact that we talked about it changes a, a second-person singular to a second-person plural, I, I mean, what does changing the word thou to y'all do for the production exactly? Does it make it more relatable? I don't know. What do you think?
0: It's a cute, like, kind of... Ploy, you know, like, oh look, they said, y'all, we can totally relate to that, ha ha ha. Like, I'm sure it'll get a laugh or two the first time it happens. But then when it continues to happen, it's like, okay, we get it, we we understand. Does it make the text clearer? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, in fact, it probably muddies it slightly. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the reason that they're doing it is because, you know, they they've committed to this Appalachian um idea of how they want to stage the play and for some reason they don't think that the text can hold up in that setting, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, and and I think that does a disservice to Shakespeare's work in general. Like, by not thinking that the text will hold up unless you change it, you're you're giving up on the uh, ability of the actors to make language... Um, relatable over this 400 or 400 years worth of time. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. that, that's something that you trust the actors with when you do a Shakespeare production because the language is old, but by telling an emotional story, you could still make it work, although it's a challenge. And you're, you're discrediting the actors, I think, by changing the language itself to make it easier for them to convey whatever they're conveying.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and and I just, it's funny, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I think this is a bad idea for this specific case, because it just seems like not it, the way that it's being described, at least, doesn't feel like it, it's adding anything. And it feels like, in some ways, it's trying to dumb it down for people, which I'm not necessarily into dumbing down the text to a point like that. It just seems like that that's not clarifying it's just kind of saying oh well th- this might be slightly confusing so let's change a couple of words sure yeah
1: so i mean i guess our conclusion is that we don't we don't necessarily knock it it's, 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 since we haven't seen it yet but we question whether or not it's valuable or necessary as a tool to make the production work
0: yeah yeah it, it just feels like there are so many, like, you have so much freedom with Shakespeare. Like, yeah, you can set it wherever you want. You can cast it however you want. And so for me, I'm kind of like, so what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare? The language makes Shakespeare Shakespeare.
1: That's true. And, the, 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 yeah, we Sarah Becker and I talked about a couple weeks ago how um, it's not necessarily Shakespeare's plots that he's known for. I mean, he's known for the plots, but more than that, he's even known for the poetry.
0: Yeah. Um, Totally.
1: So, yep. You have to trust him as a poet, I think. But that being said, go see the production uh, for yourself. If I can find the dates, I can't. Uh, there we go. As, as you like it. Well, it already passed. So <laughs> it was August 21st and 22nd.
0: Or maybe if someone out there saw it, they can tell us.
1: Yes. So listeners, if anybody saw this production, please... Write us your comments with what you think and whether you think we were stupid for questioning it all together because perhaps it was a brilliant production. Yep.
0: It's very possible we were stupid.
1: Yep. (laughs) Very possible. (laughs) Um, So the next thing that I wanted to talk about today is Shakespeare's Kings. Mm -hmm. Um, Last week with um, my guest Jasmine Stiefel, we talked a little bit about Shakespeare's foils and whether or not we thought that worked obviously, or as a device. This week I want to talk about kings, because Shakespeare has kings in so many different plays, obviously, um, but they have a range of character, you know, like from tyrant kings to aggressive kings to weak kings to to kind kings to whatever. Um, and I just wanted to talk about a few of our favorite kings. Um, so this segment is called Favorite Kings. I just decided um, what who is your favorite king in all of Shakespeare?
0: Oh, you know, I just was thinking about it. And before we like started recording, I was like, I think it's Richard the Second Because yeah. I just the language is so beautiful, like and his speeches are so beautiful. And I, I always love I love the weak kings like I love Richard and I love um, Henry the Sixth, Like these these people that are in this position that they really aren't write for necessarily, or like have like gentle souls. I find that really beautiful. And I love, I don't know. I just find it really tragic and awesome. But then I was thinking about it and I was like, I mean, the progression of how from
1: mm-hmm. Henry
0: or the Henry fours to five. I mean, and that tennis ball speech is one of my favorite speeches of all time. Yep. Uh, so I might have to go with Henry five, mainly just because, I love the progression of that and, and his speeches are so amazing. It's like the best um propaganda in the world um that whole play. And yeah, so I think I think at the moment Henry V might be my fave King. You know? As five seconds ago.
1: I <laughs> I was I was just when you said Richard II, I was so excited because I was gonna be like, Oh, mine's Henry the fifth, and we could talk about it. but like <laughs> <laughs> It, it it is because if we're counting his progression from Prince Hal to being King Henry V, it's it's a marvelous journey, you know, from from his of, of his growth. Yeah. Um, and that tennis ball speech, and the the Harfleur speech, and the the Saint Crispin's Day speech, and the um, once more into the breach. Like he is known for all these amazing soliloquies that that all show his character in a similar way, but all. Are working towards completely different objectives, and with such effect, you know. Um, one of the king that I wanted to talk about, which some people don't necessarily think of him as one of Shakespeare's kings, but um, Macbeth, I think, oh, yeah. is an oh, interesting like... character to talk about in that respect because it, he doesn't he is not of royal lineage, uh, mm-hmm. much like Richard the I guess, or Gloucester. Um, right. But these these two characters become kings through actions they, um, they undertake during the play. Right. So what do you think of Macbeth and Richard III as kings?
0: I mean, it's funny. It's hard for me even to think about them as kings, I guess. As, like, they totally are kings, but so much of those plays is them not being king or fighting to be king or trying to remain king, that to think of what they're like as kings, I guess they're both incredibly weak kings in a lot of ways. It's paranoid and just like complete and total violence. Um, but,
1: you know, it's yeah. true. And they also, like, they start out as non-kings. Right. And then they, they die before the end of the play. So it's it's very short lived, um, a very short lived regime.
0: Poor guys, they worked so hard for it. Wah, wah. But I guess it, it's funny because I I think like Richard in some ways, like he he gains the throne through you know vile means as it were. But in in a lot of ways, I mean he was in line for the throne. So I guess the way that he goes about it versus Macbeth, hmm. Richard's just smarter it feels like to me or less direct you know like Macbeth and then I kill the king and then I do that you know like and Lady M has so much to do with it whereas with Richard I don't know we just get so much more of who he is through the soliloquies and and what his thought process is um that I find him a little bit more interesting I guess as a character though Macbeth is apparently the hardest male role to play a lot of people say
1: well, and the, the, the thing about Macbeth is that you have to make him sympathetic to an extent or the play doesn't work. Like, the audience isn't interested. I and, and I think that's also similar with with Gloucester slash Richard III. Like, if you don't make this character sympathetic to the audience, then the play's not interesting because you're watching a villain undergo yeah. villainous acts to their own villainous end. Or Whereas
0: like charming like you have to be like oh my god i can't believe richard just did that like mark rylance doing richard he was like a clown for like (laughs) most of the play and you're like oh what a charming guy you know and then by the end you're like wow what a total monster but like to have connection with the audience with richard i think is really important
1: well and on the other side of that Macbeth, i feel like you have to you have to be rooting for him from the beginning, because, I mean, this this is a guy that just comes back from battle having accomplished something great. And right. then something even greater is thrust upon him, and you just have to feel bad for, I think, how much his ambition gets the better of him. Not necessarily watching him undertake a tyrannical set of actions, but yeah. rather just seeing his downfall and feeling bad for how much he's his ambitions getting the better of him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a warning out there to all those people with ambitions. No, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I, for some reason I always feel a little bit alienated from Macbeth. And I guess I don't feel that way about Richard just because you're like, yeah, dude, I totally get where you're coming from. You want to be King. You like, you are, you know, a Prince, essentially a Duke, Duke of Mm. Gloucester, like in line for the throne. Like, and you don't want to be looked over. And I totally get that. I guess more than the Macbeth arc, which is like, oh my God, these crazy witches came out and were like, you're gonna be king. Um so it's interesting. So I guess personally, it's hard for me to feel bad for Macbeth or relate to Macbeth. And I think that's why it's such a challenge. Challenge as an
1: actor, yeah, you're right. Um one other king I wanted to to bring up is on the in the same vein as king henry the fifth i want to talk about king henry the fourth yeah and his character and playing the role of like the disappointed dad who like wants his son to to be more responsible and take over and in the meantime is dealing with all this other shit um yeah
0: false king technically
1: yeah so Mm -hmm. i don't know henry king henry the fourth seems more like a He's a seasoned king more than the rest, it seems like, because he has been king for a much longer time. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Would you consider him more benevolent than the others?
0: I've always kind of seen him as a, like, you know, Bolingbroke is such a, I don't know, in my mind, such a, like, tough character. um, And kind of, I, I always have found him rather harsh. I don't know. And what happens to Richard II... I always just kind of think about and, and with him and his relationship with Hal. Sure. Um, it, for me, he feels really like yeah, he's like the typical dad. I did a workshop of Henry the Fourth, Part One, sure. a long while ago, and, and they the way that they were playing with it was the idea that what if the same actor played Henry the Fourth and Falstaff? Which actually works, except for there's one scene that they're together in, so it do- wouldn't actually work. But um, this idea of these two father figures, right? So you have Henry, King Henry IV, who's you know incredibly judgmental um, and really hardline, it feels like, towards Hal, and then you have Falstaff, who's this generous, loving, debaucherous guy. Um, and what if they're both same the same sides of the same uh, different sides of the same person? Um, so I always kind of think of King Henry IV in relationship to Falstaff and how they relate to how, I guess, because of that. Um, so I've always seen him as not the most benevolent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of not the most benevolent, um, the last King on my list is King Lear. Um, Uh, and of course there's, there's plenty of other Kings in Shakespeare we could be talking about. And I, I don't, I'm just for the purposes of today, I felt like talking about these six. Um, but King Lear as, not so benevolent and as one of the probably more experienced kings in all of Shakespeare being one of the oldest um, or at least oldest I would say in average age by the actor playing King Lear Um, I don't know why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you think about King Lear
0: Um, so that was hilarious because what just happened was it it broke up for a second so all I heard was tell us what you think about King Lear and I'm like what what was the the lead (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what do I think about King Lear? Yes, in general, or as, well, a, as
1: comparison? a comparison to, to King Henry IV Fourth or the other kings we've talked about. I mean, he's he is one of the older kings. Um, well, yeah, and...
0: it's funny. I I've wa- seen a couple productions recently, and apparently there's a a book that someone wrote that I really want to read, like a fiction. Um, but like every time I see Lear, I'm always like, he's such a jerk. And such an awful father. And I always feel a little bad for Goneril and Regan until, you know, things go really crazy and, you know, Gloucester loses his eyes and stuff like that. But, like, when they're like, you can't have all of your crazy drunk friends at our house, (laughs) Completely sympathize. And so for me, it's always, like, a really interesting play because it's, for me, it's like taking care of an elderly parent who is not the nicest guy. I mean, apparently there's some book that I really wish I remembered the title of, but it's it's based upon King Lear, and it's from the perspective of Goneril and Regan, and I believe it's set in, like, 1930s America, like, on a farm. And it's just basically about, like, how, like, these women have this dad who's, like, horribly abusive and awful to them. Um, And when I look at King Lear, there is a part of me that, as a daughter, always is like, God, if this is what my dad were like, would I be more like <laughs> Goneril and Regan? Or would I be more like Cordelia? I don't yeah, know.
1: It's interesting.
0: In between the two. But um, there's something about it that it's really hard. Um, he's so, so definitive, so hardline with his kids. Um, and only until like I feel like he really goes mad at the end do I see much love from him. Um, towards his daughters, or towards Cordelia, that it, it, it feels, it for me, it, it's such a complicated character. Um, and so I, I, it takes me a while, you know, <laughs> when he goes really mad, then I obviously feel bad for him. Right. But at the beginning of the play, it, it's definitely this really convoluted
1: relationship. Um, one, one of the things I find most interesting about all these kings, like, from Lear to Macbeth to, to Henry V, is that Shakespeare is undergoing an attempt to humanize a uh, mm-hmm. king, which most people in this time see as a figure, you know, and not necessarily a person. Um, and I, I, I keep going back to this one speech at the end of Henry IV, Part Two, where Prince Hal thinks his father is dead, and he's not actually dead yet, but he basically he takes the crown... And he's talking, like, this entire speech about how, like, what a responsibility and what a terrifying responsibility it is to be king. And you, you see in his head, like, how it's it's as much of a curse as it is a privilege. Um, mm-hmm. And he's, like, bawling as he puts on this crown. Um, and then, of course, his father wakes up and is like, what? I'm not dead yet and you're already trying to take the crown away from me? And there's this whole messy scene. But it, what does humanizing a king due to a plot of a play, you know? Yeah. Like,
0: yeah, and you think about the, like, the groundlings watching it and being in a position to see, like, the inner workings of a king. Yeah. It's really interesting.
1: Well, and that's what, in particular, makes Henry V, I think, such a great play, is because you see... The power of King Henry V and all these speeches that w- that we were talking about earlier, but you you also see some of his human weakness, and especially knowing the background of Henry the the Fourth and his character as hal you you see where he has come from, so by knowing mm-hmm. all three of these plays, there's a very human king with vulnerabilities and weaknesses that we see doing king-like things, and wondering underneath that all, like, what what is going on underneath this tough skin, and is this easy for him, and is this what every king has to go through?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and, I mean, you know, the thing that I always think about, too, with it is it's, as I recall, I don't believe he was king for very long. I mean, he, I I actually am looking it up right now, he was king for um, nine years, it looks like. oof die. So I always find that really interesting. So like Shakespeare writes a play about a king that was king for a very short amount of time and then his son was not a very successful king and was <laughs> overthrown. Yeah. Um th- that like there's totally an agenda beyond just like let's write a nice story about one of our former kings. There's totally a point of view about how Shakespeare wants you to think about this dynasty and about um but
1: it's king interesting because he does try to get us fifth, to... You know? Yeah, he does try to get us to sympathize with Henry the VI at the beginning of the play by saying, like, yeah, he, it's not really his fault because he was, like, when he was king first, he was, like, what, like 10 years old or something, maybe less, and it's really the guy that was his caretaker that made all these terrible decisions that lost the kingdom for them. But at the same time, when he's presented... Like, when, when these guys, I can't remember all their names, come up and... Like have Henry the Sixth cornered in his throne room, he basically surrenders instead of like you know the the noble heroic thing of trying to fight it out. Um, yeah. Which is which is a political thing, and I, I wonder how much Shakespeare was using um, humanizing or characterizing a king as as a political tool just as much as it was a plot tool and an entertainment tool, you know? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I I think I mean, that's the thing is that the the theater, especially in that time was it's a pulpit for your ideas. Right. So I I think that he was definitely going along with what was popular and, you know, who who was in power um, and what he needed to say. Um, But out of that comes these great characters and these great speeches. You know, it's like, yeah, we can say that Henry V is a a propaganda play, but it's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I walk away being like, that guy is awesome. I like him. I wish he was my king.
1: Absolutely. Oh, man. that uh, the, the once more into the breach speech is just like one of the more fiery, invigorating, like... I, I feel like, you know how we have like our modern day hype music and hype videos? I feel yeah. like that's like the hype thing of the, the 17th century or whatever.
0: Totally. It, it, I mean, that whole... Play all of his speeches are just like fireworks going off. It's like Shakespeare's like, look what I can do, and writes these amazing speeches. Um, yeah, I, I would like to do them someday.
1: <laughs> so in in summary, we have looked at a few of Shakespeare's kings and decided that while character while while diving into the mind of a king and the heart of a king is very much uh, an entertainment device, it can also be political. And if we looked, I'll bet that if we looked back at who was the royal figure during the time each of these plays were written we would learn a little something more about the politics of each play and who Shakespeare was pandering to or trying to dig into or whatever. Totally. Um, So the next thing on our topic list is we have a um, rhetoric device of the day or a poetic device of the day which is Hyperbaton um, (laughs) which sounds like the name of a Transformer but it is not the name of a Transformer. It is a word... Uh, I lost the definition already. It is the word for altering word order or separation of words that belong together for emphasis, such as when Hamlet says, words without thoughts never to heaven go, instead of never go to heaven. Um, and I have a few examples of these, uh, which, which we'll read into a little bit later once we discuss it more, but it, the interesting thing about this poetic device is that it seems like it's often used to create rhyme or to fit the meter, um, such as uh, Marina in Pericles. Her line is, "If fires be hot, knives sharp, or waters deep, untied I still my virgin knot will keep." Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, in that it works as a as a rhyming couplet device. Uh, and Viola's line, which you Probably know all too well, Jillian is too well what love women to men may owe. Answering uh, Duke Orsino, um, and it, again, like I'm saying, it's creating this altering word order to fit a meter and make a rhyme, but it also has a poetic effect on the words and on the art of persuasion. So, I, what, what are your thoughts on this so far, Jillian?
0: Yeah, well, I just was thinking about the Marina line. So starting with, if fires be hot, right? It gets your attention right away, as opposed to saying, like, I'll keep my virgin knot even if you have fires hot and I'm sharp. Mm. Like, that's, like, starting with the image, starting with the most exciting thing, like, oh, my God, where's she going to go with fires be hot? Sure. Um, and, and then ending it with, I'll keep is the very end. It's like, it keeps you in suspense, I feel like.
1: Yeah, yeah, what's she gonna do, and, yeah, sure.
0: Leaving the verb until the end leaves you in question of where things are gonna go, which I like. Like, what's the action?
1: Well, and that's, that's an interesting part, too, because there are three elements to this, it seems like. There's a a structure element, there's Mm -hmm. a poetic element, and then there's an Mm -hmm. action-objective element. Um... Which, so if, if we can look at the, her, her words right here and try to decide, like, what is it about her objective that requires her to reverse these word orders for persuasive effect? Because the way I see it, we have four parts to this last line, untied, I still, my virgin not, will keep. Well, mm-hmm. technically five, I guess. We have untied, we have still, we have my virgin not, we have will, and we have keep right? Just all these different parts of, the, of speech, um, and my virgin knot being probably the most important one, but how many different orders could you arrange this in? Like, how, let's, we, we could go, I still will keep my virgin knot untied, which still fits a meter, but doesn't rhyme. We, yeah, and it yeah.
0: sounds confusing to me, like, I'm like, untied, she'll keep her virgin knot untied, sounds, I don't know, that's not as clear to me. Right. She'll we'll keep
1: it. But like we'll what see. if we started with my virgin knot and said something like my virgin knot I still untied will keep. It still makes sense, right?
0: Yeah. Totally. But putting it in the middle yeah. gives it more importance,
1: exactly. right? Exactly. Mm-hmm,
0: and that's from important to most important.
1: That's the that's the fascinating thing about hyperbaton to me so far as we're looking into it is that it places the more important phrase in a different area or the more important words in a different area um, for persuasive effect. If you start out with my virgin knot, I still untied will keep or my virgin knot, I untied still will keep you're giving away the, the, the valuable commodity too early in the sentence. Whereas if you hold it off more to the end and put it next to, will keep the, the gem of the sentence is next to the action verb, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm trying to think as as a character how much more that is persuasive to the listener. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah. That you're keeping that until the very end of the line. It's like uh, always start with your best argument, right. but. Phrasing it in a way where like th- they have to hold on and listen to you to the very end because this is in the in the um, brothel right with Panda and bod is that right and they're trying to make her a prostitute. Does that recall? Yes, yes, way? something
1: about, like yeah.
0: But I I also like the way that it's written has the like the way that I visualize it is her like trying to keep them at bay right and so try to keeping keep them listening and so you want to save all of the good things like all of the you know the really juicy words for later in the line so that they'll keep listening to you as opposed to um, putting them at the beginning and, you know, using right. all of your ammo and then you're standing there and they get you.
1: you right, know? because the- if she if she starts talking about her virgin knot too early in the sentence, then mm-hmm. maybe they don't listen Right, as, exactly. as closely. If she yeah. starts out with fires be hot and untied, they're like, "Whoa, what is she going to untie? And then the virgin knot subject comes up.
0: Right. hmm it, it, Yeah, it, it almost is, like, a little bit seductive, too, the way it is. Like, I will untie, you know, my virgin not I'll keep, the
1: way it yep. is. Nice. And from a poetic standpoint, again, we have the rhyming couplet, which, obviously, Shakespeare has a rhyming couplet in there either for a heightened poetic effect or to signify an exit. Whichever, like, we could debate which it is in this instance, but I actually don't have the play pulled up in front of me, so we won't do that. Um, right. But... For the character, like we, I like the idea in Shakespeare that a character always knows they're rhyming, um, well, okay.
0: yeah,
1: yeah, and and so, what part of her action objective it makes it necessary for her to create a rhyme here, you know does she want to be does she want to seem clever in a certain way and therefore put herself at a higher position in the conversation, or does she want to rhyme to get their attention even more mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think
0: think too, of keeping them listening till the end of the line, right? Like, mm-hmm. so here's the setup, and then where am I going to go? You can't, you know, you can't jump on me. You can't do what you want to do. You have to listen to what I'm saying to you, right? You know, so what's that last word I'm going to say? Before I, I think or whatever.
1: <laughs> I think we can agree that that's the important element here is to make sure that they are listening and to, to hold their attention, like you're saying, um, which was what makes hyperbaton a valuable tool because if i'm listening to somebody and i hear them rearrange two words it automatically like not that i wasn't listening before but it wakes me up in a way and and like mind messes messes with my mind in a way that i just go wait wait what just happened what Mm -hmm. if hamlet i mean Hamlet's i believe this line is part of a rhyming couplet as well but words without thoughts never to heaven go uh, or Polonius saying, "Neither a borrower nor a lender be." Mm-hmm. The the hyperbaton at the end of the sentence catches my attention, you know, and makes me think about it more, right?
0: Yeah, and just ending with that verb, I think, you know, they say that the the last word is, you know, the most important in a line. Sure. Um, and just so like ending with "be" as opposed to never be a borrower or a lender, it doesn't really set it up, you know, for the next line. Whereas neither a borrower nor a lender be, it feels yeah. like there's somewhere that you can continue to go.
1: Well, and from a, from a metric standpoint, I mean, it is iambic pentameter. So by putting the verb at the end of the line, you're putting it on the stress rather mm-hmm. than somewhere else. So yeah. even that element, I mean, the last line be or the last word being like the most important and also on the stress of the iamb makes a difference as well in conversation. I yep, think.
0: and it, saying the verbs is so important as opposed to playing the nouns or the adjectives. It's all about the verb and keeping that going.
1: Well, and it's funny you mention adjectives because the next one I wanted to bring up is a line that Brutus says. I, I specifically seeked out a couple of lines from Twelfth Night and from Julius Caesar just for, you know, nostalgia's sake. Um, yeah. But this line from Brutus, Swear priests and cowards and men cautelous." In this case, he's putting the adjective at mm-hmm. the end of the line in the the hyperbaton. Um, and what I don't know, what effect do you think that has on persuasion?
0: Can you say the line again?
1: Yes, Brutus says, "Swear priests and cowards and men, cautilis. men cautilis? Yes. Hmm. cautelous."
0: Hmm. And you- men cautelous? <laughs> yes, C A U
1: T E L O U S, cautelous. Interesting. Not cautelous men. But men, cautelous, And we know in other languages, like Spanish, for example, the adjective usually does come after the noun, um, which is is a whole thing yeah. separate from itself. But <laughs> in, in this case, in English, when it's normally before the noun, Shakespeare's putting it after. And I'm curious, thinking about it as to, to what sort of effect that has on me as a listener.
0: Well, it's like, what sort of men? And it... So it's like priests do this and cowards do this and men do this. But what kind of men? This kind of
1: man. Yeah, yeah you're right. It sort of it makes the adjective more important than the noun.
0: Yeah, because, you know, men, I'm, I'm actually I'm looking up Cautilus right now because I actually don't know what it means.
1: Yeah, me neither. I was hoping you could tell me.
0: Uh-huh. Um,
1: <laughs> We're it, experts, uh, I promise, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Yes. Well, you know, as as I like to tell my kids when I'm teaching, like when I look through a Shakespeare text, I have a dictionary next to me. It's yep. totally fine if you don't know every word um, and don't let that stop you. Uh, so Cautilus, uh, according to, uh, let's see, I don't know if I believe that, free com. That doesn't sound very positive. <laughs> see, I'm using Merriam-Webster. Kyle and I play a lot of Boggle and uh, we had to find a,
1: a dictionary. Dictionary. Uh, a control dictionary control variable dictionary
0: um okay, here we go uh it means crafty cunning is the first definition, or it could mean cautious or wary,
1: and it probably so it, that's yeah crafty, cunning that's probably the word that they that Shakespeare's using in this because this is a this is the scene um at like three in the morning or whatever in Brutus's home where they're all wearing hoods at night where he's trying to convince them how important it is to murder Caesar, so right. Cautilus... Yeah, I mean, especially the fact that it's next to cowards probably means it's the second definition.
0: Yeah, and he's all about wanting to do it in the open because it's, you know, they're doing, they're getting rid of a tyrant. So why are we hiding? Why are we lying?
1: Right? Right. (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, Um, another interesting element to this hyperbaton is that it splits up in alliteration
0: quite deliberately.
1: mm Um, it, it, you know, if it were the other way around, swear priests and cowards and caudiless men, yeah, then it, it has a more direct alliteration, but it's alliterative and yet split up, which almost makes you ignore the word "men" even more. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, totally, and it, it's funny too because, of course, I feel like it's also like, of course, Brutus is the one that talks this way, right? Like I always love in that play the difference between Brutus's speech and Antony's speech, and I feel like Brutus's speech is very, like, he has these arguments, mm-hmm. but the way that he talks always feels really uh, a lot more, I don't know, like, to the side, I guess I'd say. Like, it's never as direct, it feels like, as Antony, which I know is ironic, because what Antony's doing is kind of saying, like, oh, all of these things, but Brutus is an honor- honorable man. But the way that Antony talks is so clear and direct, and I feel like the way Brutus talks tends to be a little bit more circuitous and complicated. Sure. Maybe that's just my, I need to look at it more. Oh well, no, like, you're no. right.
1: Brutus is very head centric, right? Mm-hmm. And so his mm-hmm. words are very carefully chosen throughout the play. He's very cold. Doesn't speak in a heated way very often. Right. Um, and so he is, he's very much more deliberate mm-hmm. with his words.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the word order can be very interesting and different.
1: And I just want to acknowledge to everybody listening that this this is also from a metric standpoint valuable because if you had swear priests and cowards and cautiless men, it does something different to the iambic structure. You you have swear priests and cowards and cauteless men. Yeah. Whereas now we have swear priests and cowards and men cautillus. Yeah. So that
0: sounds
1: better. <laughs> yeah. The the structure element is there, but also there's a very, very real and present effect to having that adjective after the noun, as we've discussed. Um, wow. Just a couple more instances. I'm going to skip over these, uh, like, just uh, really quickly, or run through these really quickly. Um, we mention uh, Claudio from Measure for Measure says, If it were damnable, he being so wise, why would he for the momentary trick be perjurably fined? I mean, that's not exactly just switching words around, that's switching phrases around, right? Why would he be perjurably fine for the momentary trick? It's interesting to think about what effect that has. And then Agrippa from uh, Antony and Cleopatra says, Pardon what I have spoke, for tis a studied, not a present thought, by duty ruminated. Hmm. Yeah, and, and ruminated is a standout-ish word enough itself. Yeah. Um... But instead of saying ruminated by duty, it's by duty ruminated. Um, which, again, is interesting. We have another line from Twelfth Night. Valentine, the element itself, till seven years heat, shall not behold her face at ample view, but like a cloistress, she will veiled walk.
0: Yeah. She will walk veiled. Veiled. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it's like, oh, God, that just sounds so much better. Yep like, the the walk is, like, she's still doing it, you know? I don't know. Like, the other way it sounds to me, like, she's decided she's going to do this and she's going to be like a cloistered nun and she's going to walk around with a veil, whereas being veiled walking or, like, with a veiled walk to me just gives an image of, like, oh, no, she's constantly doing this. She's in mourning and, like, this is how she lives her life. Um, So it just gives it a different – makes it more active
1: a lot of the time. So – In summary, I guess, (laughs) Hyperbaton is a a valuable device, but the three things you have to pay attention to for it are the structural element, the poetic element, and the action-objective element. Because whether it was intended to solve one of those things, it affects all three. Um, And as an actor, you really have to give a special attention to that. Um, We are running a little behind but i'm gonna touch on this quickly just because it's so fun we decided to do a little element of um what if and this week's what if is what if characters in romeo and juliet had fought with flails how would the play be different jillian
0: so okay a flail is like is it like a morning star thing like yeah i I, I, okay um, I think there would be a lot less dying speeches. I think Mercutio wouldn't be like, oh, a scratch. I think he'd be like, I'm dead.
1: <laughs> That's true. Because, like,
0: like, it it would be a much shorter play. I think in general they would be much shorter plays if they used flails instead of swords. Like, Or like Hamlet, like, yeah, if they had poisoned flails.
1: Like, sure, eh, yeah.
0: You got hit with a flail. You're dead anyway, man.
1: (laughs) It doesn't matter. Like, you know, the poison doesn't really come into play here. And the thing about flails is like the, the primary targets for a sword, you know, are like the throat, the heart, the lungs, whereas the primary targets for a flail are probably like the head, the rib cage. Um, And so there you have like Mercutio's speech where like after he most productions do it with him getting punctured in the lung um, and so his dying speech is, is very breathy and, and forced and from the diaphragm. Um, but with a flail, if he's hit in the same area, he his rib cage would be crushed and his lungs would pretty much have a, have a much more difficult time getting any air in, right? So his speech would be much, much shorter. It would probably just be like, ah, oh, plague at both your houses. I'm dead.
0: I'm dead. Exactly. It, it would be like a you know forty-five minute play, maybe a lot yeah. more, a lot less dying people talking. <laughs> it,
1: so, in summary, flails pretty much cut a lot of the dying speeches would would pretty much cut a lot of the dying speeches out of play because death would be death would be faster and also more brutal. Like characters would be talking about like talking panicked panickedly about giant gaping wounds in the side of their head and, yes. uh, you know, black out in the middle of the speech.
0: Yeah. Also, the end of the play, well, are, are we also saying that there wouldn't be a dagger? Would it be, oh, happy flail? I thought, it would be hard to kill yourself with a flail. I feel like you'd need...
1: You need know. a lot of momentum, yeah.
0: If that, So maybe it would be happier for Julia. Maybe she wouldn't die.
1: Maybe. Or maybe she would... I don't know, in that case, like, maybe she would live longer, because she'd injure herself with a flail, but, like, be left struggling, and then when everybody comes into the tomb, she'd have dying words in front of people. Yeah,
0: that's a little grotesque. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, Shakespeare, for using daggers and foils instead. Um, so, Jillian, it has come time for our guest game of the week, which is a segment that I just invented now, um... And today's game is Famous Last Words. Um okay. just so all you listeners know, Jillian knew ahead of time that she was going to have to do this, but she didn't know exactly what it was. So this game is I'm going to put approximately, let's say what, you want 2 or 3 minutes on the clock?
0: Uh, uh I don't know. Uh let, let's do 2. Yeah, let's do All
1: right, do, let's know, do 2. And yeah. Jillian has to... You can say pass. Um, okay. I have here 18 characters dying words. And you... Okay. When I give the line, you have to tell me, or pass over, who died after they said these words. Who's, whose dying words are these? So I'm putting what two character? minutes on the clock, and we are ready to go. Caesar, now yeah. be still. I killed not thee with half so good a will.
0: Um Brutus
1: Yes one. Yes. So so tell him with the occurrence more and less which have solicited. The rest is silence. Uh, Hamlet. Yes. Oh true apothecary, thy drugs are quick. Thus with a kiss I die. Flavio They have made worms meet of me. I have it, and soundly too. Your houses Mercutio. Mercutio. That's four. Oh, I could prophesy, but that the earthy and cold hand of death lies on my tongue. No, Percy, thou art dust and food for...
0: Worms. Um, That would be Hotspur.
1: Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. But bear me to that chamber. There I'll lie, and in that Jerusalem shall Harry die.
0: Oh, I love that. Uh, Henry IV.
1: Yes. Caesar, thou art revenged, even with the sword that killed thee. Cassius. Seven for seven. Pray you, undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look, her lips. Look there. Look there. Lear. Yes. And damned be him that first cries, hold enough. Uh, Macbeth. Farewell. Commend me to my kind lord. Oh, farewell.
0: Oh, uh, uh, It's either uh, Ophelia or Lady Macbeth. <laughs>
1: wrong. Desdemona. Oh, crap. First one wrong. I kiss thee ere I killed thee. No way but this. Killing myself to die upon a kiss.
0: That's Othello.
1: Yes. Oh, happy dagger, this is thy sheath, there rust, and let me die. Split. Yes, mount, mount, my soul, thy seat is up on high, whilst my gross flesh sinks downward here to die.
0: Um, I have no idea, so I'm going to say Antony?
1: No, it's Richard the Second. shame on you.
0: Ah, shame <laughs> on me, that's really embarrassing.
1: By your leave, gods, this is a Roman's part. Come, Cassius' sword, and find Titinius' heart.
0: Oh, oh, um... Uh, it, it broke up for a second. So, did you say? Is it titanius? Yes. No. Yes.
1: Yes. Oh, treachery! Fly, good Flians! Fly, fly, fly! Thou mayst revenge, oh, slave.
0: Um. It's um. It's Banquo.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, damn, Diago! Oh, inhuman dog! <laughs>
0: uh, Rodrigo.
1: That's right. Yes. I am unarmed. Forgo this vantage, Greek.
0: Um, oh, no. pass.
1: All right. Oh, that I had him with six Alphidiases or more, his tribe to <laughs> use my lawful sword.
0: Uh, Coriolanus? That's correct. I did that show. Woo!
1: That was amazing, Jillian. You got 15 out of 18 right, and it only took you... Well, I gave you three minutes on the clock. It only okay. took you two minutes and 41 seconds. Nice! You are nice. the new champion of this game. That... That was Ooh. incredible. Well done.
0: Well, thank you. I, I And I'm the only one that's played this game, right? So. That's right.
1: But that's going to be a tough act to follow for anybody who comes on next week, especially when I do this with Christopher Owens.
0: Oh, you're doing it with Christopher Owens? Yes, oh.
1: he is going to be the guest on Friday. Um, yes. So, now that we've played a rousing game of Famous Last Words, we are going to move on to a couple of very quick listener questions, which I have pulled up here. Um... K-PopFun4, or at k fun 4 on Twitter, says, At NYShakesGuy, I want to know how to play historical drama. I want to know the production of historical drama. Well, K-PopFun4, that's not really a question, but we are happy, happy to talk about it. Um, it's, it's a pretty general question, I guess. So, Jillian, how, how yeah. do we approach this first part? I want to know how to play historical drama.
0: I, I'll be honest, I don't really understand.
1: <laughs> I think what? In, in my interpretation of this question, it refers more to the history plays, right? Something like Henry V. Um and I guess well to shape it into a question that we can answer more, let's let's examine how you preserve the history of a historical drama while still delving into the entertainment portion and, and making it a good plot. Like how much do you have to stay true? To, yeah. like, for example, Macbeth, Macbeth was uh-huh. a real person, right? Right. But yeah. was kind of nothing like the character of Macbeth in um in the play. And same with uh, Richard III, as long as we're comparing Macbeth and Richard III all day today. Let's say that <laughs> they, Richard III, there was a picture painted of him. And if you play the historically accurate Earl of Gloucester or Duke of Gloucester or whatever he is, um, if you played mm-hmm. the historically accurate Gloucester, the play would be very, very different, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, because I guess maybe the, the way I think about the history plays is that, yeah, you can... I, I think it's really valuable to research the actual person, and but as only as far as it helps you, do you know? Like, it, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier with Henry V and maybe um, Shakespeare having an agenda... Like I, I don't think that the history plays are necessarily all that true to what happened. Mm-hmm. So, in my opinion, you really only have to be as true to the history or as much as it helps you as an actor or a director or um, a designer. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, the plays live in a different world. Sure. Um, and so, in my opinion, it you can use the history as much as you want or as little as you want, but what really is important is the play, and the play can exist, I think, in a different place from what actually happened. That's just my opinion.
1: Yeah, and I agree. You have to live with the words Shakespeare gave you rather than the words history gives you, um, because it is a play, right, just like any other, and while historical events may be used, it's it's the world of the play that you have to live in in order to make the Play successful, even if you're doing it for uh, an educational purpose. Um, right. you, you still have to stay true to the words that Shakespeare gave you and the, the character outline that Shakespeare gives you through the normal actor things. What do they say? What is said about them? What do they do in the play, etc. Yeah, um, it's
0: like, talk about, you know, this isn't strictly a history play, but Coriolanus, because I've done Coriolanus, which I feel like a lot of people can't say.
1: Yeah, you are the, um, like one of like one out of ten thousand <laughs> actors that have ever done Coriolanus. But lucky you, that's a fun play.
0: It's a fun play, but for that, like, it can be really helpful to, to know about Roman history and how things worked in the Republic, just so that you understand the arguments and what people are talking about in the play. Um, so I definitely did some research for that, just so I could understand like who these different people were. Um, but at the same point, you know, there was a, Coriolanus was a real person. Um, he did lead an uprising against Rome, like all of that really happened. And, and so it's helpful to know that kind of like the cliff notes of that and the basics of you know, Roman society and how that worked at the time. Um, but I wouldn't say necessarily that delving in deeper would have given any more insight beyond getting to know the world of where you're playing.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so next question we have is from, hold on, let me pull this up real quick, is from at Emily Ingram S. Some critics have suggested that the parts of Cordelia and the Fool might originally have been doubled. What effect do you think this would have created that is lost when the parts are played by separate actors? Which I think is a great question, Emily.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, I think that Lear has such a close relationship with The Fool. And like, like I was saying earlier, like I really struggle with that play because of how he treats his children. Right. I think in some ways, it would, be, it would be great to have the Cordelia and The Fool uh, double cast, right? Yeah. Or the same actor playing them. Um, because it gives you this like, very intimate, fun, light relationship between these two people that you don't necessarily get to see otherwise in the show. I I'm all for it. I think it would be awesome.
1: Yeah, what do you- um, it's hard for me because I don't know Lear as well as the other plays, but the the doubling effect of of Cordelia and the Fool almost. I mean, it gives them a similar like obviously the the actor playing the roles is the same, so both characters look similar. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, same height, same eyes, similar voice, probably unless the actor's doing something like really intense to change the voice, but it almost oh. sets Cordelia and the fool at a comparison for the audience, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, whenever you have two similar characters, like you have, like, Viola and Sebastian in, um, in Twelfth Night, you, you think not only, like, what's different about them, but also what's the same about them, and them looking similar puts them at a juxtaposition. I'm just not kind of yeah. sh- sure what juxtaposition it puts them at in, in Lear, you know? Right.
0: Yeah. I guess for me, it, it just is how Lear interacts with both of them. Sure. Um, that's the main thing that I think you get out of it. Um, and I think it creates this idea that, you know, if it's the same actor, you see a closeness between them yep. in the scenes that you may not get in the Cordelia scenes.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Two. I'm trying to remember. Cause it's been a while. But there's something that like the fool really loved Cordelia or something like that, or, and was really upset. I can't remember. I'll have to look at it. But um, there's some sort of connection with them textually as well that I can't recall. <laughs>
1: well, and what, and what you're saying is that if if they're not played by the same actor, then that juxtaposition and that uh, that obviousness for the audience to make those comparisons and those contrasts is is kind of lost, and the audience just thinks them as it thinks of them as two separate characters and therefore they don't, they don't get necessarily that ability to compare the two characters because it's not as obvious, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So that's what's lost, I guess, in, in that. Um, the last question we have today, uh, which I just got from bullet for the heart at Robert Ray on Twitter, uh, asks, what was Shakespeare's favorite word, i.e. the word he used more than any other. And throughout this podcast, I've been tearing my brain up trying to look up all of these words that Shakespeare uses more often than the others. Because the Open org, which is a great resource for any of you looking for textual st- statistics on Shakespeare, is um, it lists the top 15 words in Shakespeare as stuff like I, my, with, you, for. You know, boring words. So I decided to take the most searched for words, which they give us a list of about uh, 200, 300, 500 of the most searched for words in Shakespeare. And I ran a couple of the ones I thought would appear most commonly through the text database. Right? So, like, and, uh, you know, I left out words like Romeo that would be only appearing in one or two plays. Um, Mm -hmm. And the word love, it turns out, appears 2,209 times in Shakespeare, whereas by contrast, the word fly appears, like, 200 sometimes. The word death appears 800. Um, And what might have been obvious uh, before I looked at it, I should have guessed, is that the word king also appears some 2,342 times. So... And and I didn't get a chance to look up all the words. Obviously, maybe there are words that appear more often that are interesting words. But what do you what do you think about this fact that ch- the love and king are both used more than two thousand times in the canon, Jillian?
0: Yeah, my guess would have been love, um, and I kind of love that it is. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that you know, I I think that that says something about what Shakespeare's writing about, right? I I think he's writing about really passionate people that don't live in the middle of emotion. They live at these heights, right? So mm-hmm. the fact that love appears so many times makes a ton of sense. And it, it makes me happy that it's more common than hate or something like that. Um, well, and, and by t-
1: contrast, the word, um, the word hate appears only 297 times. I think it was. Yeah. Mm. Oh,
0: there also may be more synonyms for hate. <laughs>
1: possible. Yes.
0: Um, but yeah, I think there's really something lovely about that. Um, and, and, I think it has to do with the fact that he's writing about people in extreme situations, um, sure. and people going through extreme feelings. Um, so the fact that King and love are two of the most common words really fits into that for me.
1: Sure. Yeah. Extreme situations. Uh, you know, it's interesting cause in pretty much every comedy, there's an element of marriage at the end. You know, the, the common thing people say about Shakespeare is, in the tragedies, everybody dies, and in the comedies, everybody gets married. Yep. Um, so you have, I mean, and Shakespeare has far more comedies than tragedies, I believe, if I'm if I'm looking at the plays correctly. And so there, the word would, the love would be used, like in the fifth act alone, hundreds and hundreds of times, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's not even including... The tragedies like Romeo and Juliet or Othello, where love is still a big underlying theme amidst war or conflict, um, between houses and, and etc. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, in extreme situations, you were, you would use the word love a lot, and in plays with kings, you would use the word king a lot. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, We have just about run out of time, Jillian, so before we go, why don't you tell us what you're working on next and how our listeners can get in touch with you? All
0: right, well, at the moment, what I'm working on next, um, personally, I just had a baby, so that's taking up quite a bit of my time, Um, so it's been awesome just hanging out with her. Uh, I also um, am teaching with the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, Um, so if you are familiar with them, you might see me around. Um, I'm also part of a group of actors called uh, The Blank Space. We get together every month and work with writers and directors on projects. It's a really great kind of free-form thing. Um, You can check us out at theblankspace.org. Nope, sorry, that's wrong. You can check us out at thespacespace.org. That's our name. Um, and also, you can check out my website. It's just my first and last name. That's JillianWiggin.com, G-I-L-L-I-A-N-W-I-G-G-I-N.com.
1: That's it. All right, and that's Jillian Wiggin. And, of course, for me, I'm Kyle Downing, Shakespeare coach in New York City. Uh, you can get in touch with me by emailing me at nyshakesguy@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on social media on Twitter, at NYShakesGuy, on Instagram, at NYShakesGuy, or on Facebook, NYShakesGuy. And of course, for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can visit my website, www.kyledowning.com slash Shakespeare. I'm Kyle Downing, for Jillian Wigan. Thanks for listening, everyone, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.